Hello and welcome to www.parentsjourney.net and the Wilderness Therapy and Residential Treatment Journey podcast. This podcast is produced by parents who, like you, are currently or have been involved in this unexpected journey with your child and your family. We have had multiple thousands of downloads of our podcast so far. Feedback's been great and the community is growing. Our first dozen or so episodes were really tremendous. At this point, we decided to move on to a second season of the podcast. The reason is that a number of the topics we've covered to date have been focused on core needs, like what wilderness therapy or residential treatment offer and how to decide what is best for you and your child, parent therapy, insurance, and transportation. We will still record ongoing episodes that cover this important material, but we also wish to learn and share more about some topics that are both really interesting and impactful but maybe not so mainstream. They include websites to find out more information about this ecosystem, a feature about addiction, transition and aftercare services, college support, and even Christian-based therapeutic options. Feel free to reach out to us if there's a topic you wish to be covered. We have a contact form on our website, www.parentsjourney.net. As previously requested, If you're enjoying the podcast, please request an invitation to our Facebook group called Parents Journey. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and please tell others about the podcast. Thanks again for your time and interest. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, this is Andy and welcome to the newest episode of the Wilderness Therapy and Residential Treatment Center Journey podcast. Hi, I'm Lori. Thanks for joining us today. Last episode, Frank King joined us to talk about suicide identification and prevention. It was a really vulnerable, educational, and interesting episode, and I hope you will tune in if you haven't already. Today, we're going to talk about another tough but important subject, addiction, specifically alcohol addiction. We know adolescents or young adults who are struggling with mental health issues may turn to alcohol to cope. Parents and older adults do this as well. Yes, unfortunately, it's pervasive. Yes, it is. And what many people don't know is that some people are far more predisposed to alcoholism than others. The common element in defeating alcoholism is like dieting. A lot of people try it, but they can't stick with it. It's because it's really hard and maybe beyond their control. So we wanted to speak to an expert on alcohol addiction to help parents with children who have turned to alcohol or drugs. We're really, really pleased and excited to be able to connect with Claudia Christian today. Claudia has a really interesting background. She experienced some childhood trauma and turned to Hollywood and later to alcoholism to help her survive. Yes, Claudia is an actress who has appeared in many TV shows and movies and also does voiceovers for shows and even games. She's best known for her role as Commander Susan Ivanova on the science fiction television series, Babylon 5. And she also has voiced over several characters on the video games for Bethesda Softworks, including Skyrim and Fallout 4. More recently, Claudia's alcoholism became so addicting, it threatened her life, not just her day-to-day happiness and productivity. Fortunately, alcohol no longer controls Claudia's life. So, I love hearing when people turn challenging times into opportunities to give back. Claudia's current passion is educating people on alcoholism. She uses her celebrity to support her main charity work, which is publicizing 
the Sinclair method as a treatment for alcoholism. Welcome, Claudia. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey, great to have you. Um, based upon what I spoke about above, I'm sure our listeners are eager to hear more about your background. Can you please share a bit about your life story? What led you to alcoholism and how you knew you needed to find a solution that worked? Absolutely. So um, I started uh, I started out as sort of a light drinker in my 20s. And um, I was already in the film industry working in television and film. And I was quite a responsible young lady. I was buying a house very young and I was married very young. And, and uh, alcohol and partying really wasn't my... my um, sort of my, my wheelhouse. I was more focused on making a career and, and being very adult-like. So I worked a lot and um, had responsibilities. And I, like I said, drinking was just not, it was not a thing that I was focused on at all. I mean, I think if my ex-husband and I split a bottle of wine on a Saturday night, it was a big deal. It was like, wow, I really hit the bottle, you know? Um, <laughs> And then throughout the years, in my early 30s, I, um, I was still working a lot and, and I, I started getting more into wine. And I started dating people who drank um, more heavily, restaurateurs and people in, in the industry that, uh, that, that just tended to be more European, drinking with every meal. Um, so that was my 30s. And then in my late 30s, I remember, I was dating somebody and he said to me that he had never seen a woman drink as quickly as I drank. And I, and I thought that was kind of strange. And, and then you my bet. mother, yeah, you know, it was sort of like, uh, wow, you can drink a beer in three sips. And I was like, yeah, well, I was thirsty. Um, and then my mom came over one day and she, she couldn't believe how many wine bottles were in my recycling bin. And I, and I sort of blew it off and said, well, I mean, that's a few weeks. It's, I don't empty it every week. So I think I kind of knew that I was drinking heavily, but it wasn't really adversely affecting my life. Um, and I wasn't drinking because of any trauma or anything. I was just, I was just enjoying myself too much, I guess. And I decided to quit to sort of prove to them, you know, oh, I'm not an alcoholic or anything. I'm just, uh, I can easily quit. And I did that, I quit and unbeknownst to me, it caused what's known as the alcohol deprivation effect where once you quit your brain that it has, has been so used to the endorphin reaction from alcohol that it starts to crave alcohol. And this is what happens to people, for instance, when they go into a rehab facility is they're there for 30 or 60 days with no access to alcohol. Suddenly they get out and they relapse within a few months because the, the cravings kick in and your brain starts telling you that you really don't have a drinking problem because you were sober for a month. <laughs> you know, this is, this is the sort of insidious nature of a compulsive disorder of the brain. So in my case, I did quit and you know, about six months in, my brain started telling me that I didn't have a drinking problem because I had proved it. I had been sober for six months. And so I, I drank again and now I became a binge drinker. So it, I really went from being light to you know, light drinker to a social drinker to a heavier drinker, like, you know, maybe four nights a week to then abstinent and now a binge drinker. And then it got progressively worse because I no longer had an off button. So it was really a radical change when I look at it now, um, you know, to, to have that sort of uh, 
that biological issue happen in my brain where suddenly I was literally a binge drinker. I, I would I would not be able to stop. And then I would drink for a few days and then I would just feel horrible and I'd have to sort of, you know, detox for a week. So after that, and I would, I would say I probably was about 39 or 40 when this was occurring. And after that, I, my life was pretty much broken down into how many times did I binge that year? So I would have, you know, seven months of sobriety and a week of drinking, three months of sobriety and a week of drinking, you know, and on and on. And it was a very, um, very uncomfortable time of my life. Obviously, it, I was when I was sober, I was dealing with intense cravings or white knuckling as they as they call it. Uh, even mental cravings where all I could do is think about the fact that I couldn't drink or I uh, wanted to drink. And so I was sort of this, when I was sober, I was a dry drunk and I don't like that expression, but it does sort of tell the tale. It's a, it's a very 12 step, step uh, um, expression. But it, it it does describe it. You're you're literally you're not drinking alcohol, but you're you're still as obsessed or addicted to it in your mind. So at that point, I decided I better do something about all of this. So I started, you know, asking around, and of course, AA was the only thing on the plate that I knew about. I did some AA meetings, and it just didn't really jive with me. It seemed very antiquated to read from this hundred-year-old book, and and a lot of the um, the, the formality and repetition of it and all of the negativity, calling somebody powerless, you know, you're powerless, just didn't, it didn't feel good to me. I was a woman in Hollywood. I was, you know, I was, I didn't want to be called powerless. And I certainly, from my scientific background, from my family, um, doctors, scientists, researchers, genetic engineers in my family, I didn't believe that I was completely powerless over. I thought there must be something to do to, to get me back to the way I used to be, which is I didn't think about alcohol. I drank on occasion. I just wanted to be that girl again. So I ended up trying um, hypnotherapy. I tried uh, rehab, traditional rehab. Um, I tried vitamin therapy, diet, exercise, uh, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy. I mean, you, you name whatever I could find and throw at this issue. I tried, but the one thing nobody ever offered me was a medication. And that was, that was very interesting. They, the only medication that was ever thrown out in front of me for, for uh, consideration was when I was in rehab and they gave me a prescription for antabuse. And I read the instructions and the side effects on it. And I said, there's no way I'm taking this. It could kill you, literally kill you. It, your liver could fail if you, if you take this and drink on it or, or even just take it. So that scared the heck out of me. So I never took it, but that was the only medication I knew about. It wasn't until 2009, I had a spectacular relapse and um, I ended up getting severely alcohol poisoned. So I had to go to a medical detox and I had never been to a medical detox, but I was trying to cold turkey on my own and I started to withdraw to the, the point of sort of losing motor function. And I really thought I was gonna stroke out. I was very scared. At that point in my life, I knew nothing about tapering. I didn't know anything about recovery. I, I just was sort of, you know, my, my attitude was, well, if you have too much and you don't feel good, you better just stop drinking altogether and just buck it up and, and sober up. And that's really dangerous, I've found out. That if you have that high of an alcohol blood level, um, then it's really quite dangerous to just go cold turkey. You could actually stroke out and die. So there I am in my 
first and only medical detox and I'm being treated rather horribly and I feel awful. And I got, they gave me some sort of medication to calm, to stop the shaking. And at that point I just felt good enough to go home and I hated being there. It was awful. They were, they just treated me like I was a criminal or something. So I checked myself out and on the way out, I grabbed a flyer and the flyer was for a, a shot, a monthly shot and it promised to get rid of the cravings. And I went home and I researched what that shot was and it ended up being the primary ingredient was something called naltrexone. And naltrexone, I Googled it and this book popped up, The Cure for Alcoholism. And I was saying, what the heck, cure for alcoholism? That's a lot of hogwash. And, but I opened up the book and there were some free chapters that you could read. And suddenly I was reading about something called targeted pharmacological extinction, how you take this opiate antagonist an hour before you engage in the behavior you want to decrease or stop and it's like Pavlov's dog in reverse. So every time you drink on an opiate antagonist, you're not getting the reinforcement from the alcohol. So eventually your brain kind of says meh, and it doesn't care about alcohol anymore. And this to me made sense. It was science. It was based in science. They had clinical trials. They had a, they had a 78% um, long-term success rate. I mean, I just devoured all of the information I could possibly find on it. I ordered the book and then, I called my, my GP and I said, I'd, I'd like to get um, an appointment as soon as possible. I went into the office maybe two days later. Of course, I'm still sort of detoxing from alcohol, so I didn't feel great. But I went in and I told him, I said, look, I'm drinking too much and I really want to do, I want to try naltrexone. And he looked at me and he said, I am not giving you an opiate. And I was like, it's not an opiate. It's an opiate blocker, dude. Look it up in your in your little black book, your little black medication book. And, and he refused. He said, you just, just go to an AA meeting and quit. And so I was really angry at that point. This was my doctor for years. And I just, I was so angry that he wouldn't even look it up. He just refused me. So I went home and I very, very, I was very frightened, but because I knew it was illegal, I, I ordered it online. I had to, I had no other choice. So I ordered it from some, comp, some pharma company in India and um, it took weeks and weeks to, to finally arrive. At that point, I had been, let's see, like three, three and a half months sober. So it took a long time to get to me, maybe six to eight weeks. Or by the time I finally figured out how to do it and I got scammed a few times, I finally, finally got this order in. I got the book, I read the book, um, and then finally the medication arrived. And at this point, I, I was craving heavily. And I knew I was going to relapse. So this was really my, my last chance. I said that, you know, I don't know if this medication is going to work for me. I don't know what it's going to do to me, but I don't have a choice. I've tried everything else that is available in, I, I was, I was desperate, literally desperate. I couldn't live like that. I couldn't live with that constant psychological addiction and thought of alcohol. I just wanted to be free. I didn't want to think about alcohol. I didn't want to have to have alcohol and I didn't want to have to avoid people because there was alcohol somewhere. I wanted to be normal again. So I brought it home with a bottle of red wine and I made some dinner and I popped the pill and I waited an hour and I felt kind of spaced out, but um, I carried through a poured a glass of wine after I waited an hour and I couldn't even finish that glass. And that set me on this journey for the next few months of just drinking like a normal person. And after I, I reached what's called extinction, it's where you just literally do not think about alcohol anymore. It's not in your mind. It's just 
doesn't matter. You'd rather have a cup of coffee. And I was drinking like a normal person, taking my tablet an hour before going to a social event. I wasn't really drinking at home. I mean, I just felt, oh my God, I'm, I'm normal. It has undone something in my brain. And at that point, I just decided I, I better scream from the mountains about this because otherwise I would be remiss in my duty as a human being. And so now here I am <laughs> 11 years later um, and I pretty much devoted my life to the advocacy of this method, which is called the Sinclair method. And the Sinclair method is targeted use of naltrexone, which is an FDA approved medication. It's been approved since 1994 for alcohol use disorder. And it's just simply used in a different manner. Most doctors in the United States prescribe it um, daily with abstinence. And this method, you take it an hour before you drink. So, and it's far more effective that, in that manner. Because if you take it in the morning, for instance, you would take it and what would you block the endorphins from? You'd block the endorphins from working out, making love, eating food, <laughs> you know, <laughs> playing with your kids or animals. So. This method makes so much more sense. And over the past decade plus, I've seen in my um, coaching work, more like an 85% long-term success rate, especially with individuals who comply and do it correctly and also get other support at the same time. They work on their recovery. They work on the reasons why they're drinking. And, and so this has been a joy for me. I've, I've worked with veterans. I've worked with children. I mean, teenagers. I've worked with people with dual diagnoses, with mental illness. I've worked with um, so many people also who have a pressing need for privacy. Um, and they can do this at home. It's inexpensive. It's, you just have to pay for the medication. Insurance covers a lot of the telemedicine programs right now. And when I started, as I said, I could not find a doctor in the United States. And now, thanks to the work of my nonprofit and telemedicine, the entire United States is covered with doctors who will support you in doing the Sinclair method. And that just makes me so happy that nobody has to suffer the way I suffered. Nobody has to be turned down by their doctor, that you have a choice in your own recovery of how, how, to, how to get there and what's comfortable for you. Well, thank you, Claudia, for that. Uh, expansive description, and it was compelling, um, you know, based upon your struggles and uh, and what you did to try to solve it and the lengths that you had, had to do to find uh, something that works that you really support. And we'll talk about the Sinclair method a little bit more later. Um, but a lot, a lot of the people um, who are listeners have, you know, have children who are going through mental illness. And I know you, um, you know, uh, had the alcohol challenge when you were uh, older than that. And, um, but there are a lot of kids who have trauma at a young age or turn to it at a young age. I know you had some trauma at a younger age too. Did that contribute to anything? And, and, um, you know, how, how, how is it different for, uh, you know, for, for, for younger kids? Well, it's interesting how kids handle stress and trauma. Um, I was, uh, I had OCD as a kid, um, so I counted things and that's how I kept uh, my life, I guess, organized and how I kept control of my brain. And OCD, I have some relatives who also have it and it, it formed in, in different manners. But for me, I was a counter and I could not actually function without counting everything. 
And if anybody out there knows or has an obsessive compulsive disorder, they will know that it takes over your life, whether it's counting calories or not eating, starving yourself, bulimia, um, you know, uh, hoarding, stealing. I mean, it, 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 all of these things really become your life and it's devastating and it's scary. But some children have this reaction where they, they experience some sort of trauma, adults as well, and their mind goes into this overload of trying to organize it. So if I wash my hands 50 times a day, I will be okay. Everything will be in order. We don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about, you know, compulsive use disorders to know what triggers that or if it's hereditary or if it's combination of factors. But I do know that substance misuse often occurs when people are pushing down and stomping down their feelings and also self-medicating from undiagnosed bipolar, manic depression, any of these issues, schizophrenia, people will self-medicate with substances, drugs and alcohol. So the first thing to do if your child is, is, is abusing any sort of substance, I would say, is to get them into a good psychiatrist and be diagnosed. And the second thing is, is you really have to look at the stress that is compounding in, in everyone's life, from children being bullied to adults during COVID, being trapped in their house with their children, trying to work, trying to make money, people not working, people you know gaining weight, not working out, the, the stress and the anxiety, putting on a happy face for your kids, all of this takes its toll. So I have a lot of adults actually abusing alcohol right now. I mean, it is skyrocketed. How many people are developing alcohol use disorders during COVID because of the stress and the anxiety? And this is what they feel like will temper it, will relax them, but it is a vicious circle because once the alcohol wears off, the cortisol just shoots through your body and you feel more anxious. And then your tolerance gets raises and then it takes more alcohol to feel the same way as it did with the first drink. So now you're in this the vicious cycle of drinking more and more and more every night. And then by four o'clock you're craving, you're thinking about that wine, that drink. And it's really, it's hard. There's another thing that, that I wanted to mention about children is if a kid is socially anxious, and a lot of times you'll hear this, I'll hear this from clients of mine, they'll say, you know, I tried alcohol when I was 14 years old, and it's the only thing that made me feel like myself. And that is interesting to me, because a lot of those people will definitely de will, will develop issues later on in life, because their only go to mechanism to go to a party or to be around friends is to be high. And, and that's how they feel comfortable in their own skin. And so until we really show that individual that the real them, the authentic them, the sober them is a beautiful person who's just fine at a party and to give them the skills and the tools they need to be able to function in society without tampering down their feelings with a, with a substance, then they're simply going to keep going for the same knee-jerk reaction, which is I'm going to have a drink before I go there because I don't feel comfortable in my own skin. So all of these things, and by the way, that's a normal feeling for a teen to feel. It's hormonal as well. I mean, you've got all these hormones raging through their body. A lot of them are hormonally imbalanced. That's why they're tired and cranky. And, and here you, you're adding a substance to it because it makes them temporarily feel good. But, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, Andrew, if you engage in these sort of activities before your brain is fully formed, you have a much higher chance of developing an addiction later on in life. So your brain usually fully develops around the age of 21, 22, 23, the human brain does. And here you've got kids who have maybe the genetic predisposition, let's say they've got a grandfather or a 
parent who had substance use disorder. And now they're drinking or using before their brain is fully developed. Now they're going to have an even greater chance of developing uh, a substance use disorder. So it's, it's, it really is something that you have to nip in the bud. You have to educate children. You have to educate their parents. And you really have to say, you know, we need to get everything checked out first, um, you know, blood tests, hormone levels, um, vitamins, minerals, check their diet, make sure they're physically active. Um, as we all know, we're working out produces our own body's natural opiates, which is dopamine, serotonin, you know, all, all these good feel good feelings. So it's important for children and adults to be healthy. But, you know, the people develop addictions or compulsive use disorders because of repetition. You know, you normally walk into a bar and have one drink and turn into an alcoholic. You keep repeating the action over and over again and your brain gets wired to that. Your neural pathways get engorged and now they are used to the having that substance and then they need that substance. And that's the vicious cycle of addiction. So is it fair to say that alcohol is used um, just as frequently, if not more, for coping and dealing and making yourself feel good as opposed to just a social interaction that complements a social, you know, a, a social event? No, oh, I don't think that people in America know how to drink at all. And I'm, that's a very general statement, but I, I, I work with so many people who just believe that alcohol has to be at everything, celebratory, every, every, every single event, uh, reading a book, uh, you have to have a glass of wine. You know, whereas in other countries, you literally have a small amount of wine with the meal. You don't drink while you're cooking it. You know, you don't have a big glass of wine with 12 ounces in it, glugging it while you're drinking it. I mean, just seems like here, we can't watch a, a movie or a sports event or go to a, a, a baby shower, for God's sake, without booze. Everything revolves around booze. And think about it. It's, it's, it's a marketing dream. And now, you know, they, they've been targeting women for the past decade. And guess what? Alcohol use disorders amongst women skyrocketed because it's mommy o'clock or wine, wine o'clock or all this, you know, wine, mommy juice and all this stuff. That's marketing. So they got you. And now women are dying. Women are developing cirrhosis much younger. There are, uh, like I said, the, the, the percentage of women developing alcohol use disorders between the ages of 18 and, and 40 are skyrocketing. And now the older generation as well. So you've got seniors becoming alcoholic. It's, it's quite scary, but it's all because the multi-billion dollar alcohol company is targeting people and saying to you, you can't go to the beach without having a beer, which is complete BS. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but there, there are beautiful things to do without alcohol in life. And you don't always have to have a drink in order to, to celebrate something or to just be. And it's, it's, you know, uh, it's quite remarkable. We are a country of huge drinkers, huge drinkers. No doubt. Thanks for that response. Claudia, um, can you maybe explain to our listeners how addiction occurs and, and what effects it has on the brain and behavior? Well, in layman's terms, I'm not gonna talk about what every substance hits every part of the brain. In layman's terms, Specifically, alcohol is like this. The average person, when they drink alcohol, everybody releases endorphins. And this, this is a direct result of, of drinking alcohol. These endorphins 
flutter up and they adhere to the opioid receptors. And that makes the neuropathways stronger. In a normal person, these neuropathways stay quite regular, regular size. In somebody who perhaps has the genetic predisposition for alcohol and they engage in the behavior maybe before their brain is fully developed, around 22, 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, they might have a better chance of developing an alcohol use disorder. And what does that mean? That means the neuropathways become stronger and stronger and stronger. And at this point, then the compulsive behavior becomes stronger and stronger. Your brain needs more. You develop tolerance to the substance, specifically alcohol in this case, and that means you need more alcohol to feel the way you did with the first drink. So think of it this way. A lot of people drink one drink and they go, ah, oh, I feel okay, I feel the relaxation. Well, what they don't realize is that at that point, your body is sort of, your brain is just overcompensating with cortisol, with everything else to try and temper this, this strange substance that you just introduced into your body. So pretty soon, if you continue drinking more than one, two, three, four drinks, you're going to need like one or two, even to get that feeling of the first one. And then you're going to need drink number three, probably within 20 minutes of the last one, because you just aren't getting the same feeling anymore. You need more. That's called developing a tolerance. So that's when addiction starts to formulate. So you get, then you become physically dependent. And then basically your entire life is simply an effort to not withdraw. And what does that mean? That means that you are constantly drinking just in order to maintain any sort of normalcy. That is, that's why people drink in the morning to stop the shakes. That's why people continue. They sneak drinking at work. They bring little bottles with them so they can just put like 5% alcohol in their body every hour so that they can maintain just, just any sort of behavior. They can go to work and they can function. This is what we call functioning alcoholics. These are people who have to drink in order to move around. And these are also people that if they stop drinking could go into severe withdrawal and could die. They could, they could go into cardiac arrest, they could have a stroke, they could have a seizure. So that's why it's extremely dangerous to go cold turkey when you are physically addicted to alcohol. It's extremely dangerous. One should either taper or go to a professional detox. So that's sort of the nature of addiction. When somebody becomes addicted to, you can be addicted to many things. By the way, the same area of the brain, and I work with opiate antagonists, and that's the method that I used to stop drinking. That same area of the brain um, also has gambling in it, um, overeating, binge eating. So opiate antagonists can also be used for these behaviors. Because when you think about an irrational compulsive actions such as gambling your home away or your child's savings account that's not rational um, choosing to buy a bottle of whiskey instead of feeding your baby that's not rational that's not so when you try to rationalize with a compulsive disorder of the brain like addiction or uh, which also falls into the category of eating disorders you know you can't rationalize it you can't tell somebody oh just stop drinking or hey to an anorexic just eat something that's, that's trying to rationalize with it, trying to be logical with it. And it's not a logical thing. Addiction is not logical. So talk therapy alone, in my opinion, really is not a, a complete care package for dealing with addiction. You really need to address the biological aspect of it. And what is that? That means your brain needs to change back to the pre-addictive state. And what did we just discuss? 
enhanced neuropathways. So you've got a normal person with a little country road of neuropathways. And then you have this person who's addicted to a substance and their neuropathways are massive. So what do we want to do? We want to okay. shrink those neuropathways down. So the method that I use, the Sinclair method, which is targeted use of naltrexone, I no longer use it because I no longer drink. You only use the medication if you drink alcohol. Involves an opiate antagonist called naltrexone, which is FDA approved, it's generic, it's inexpensive. You can get it from any local doctor. You can, you know, it's very easy to access. It was approved in 1994 for use in alcoholism. However, most doctors prescribe it daily with abstinence. The method that I used and that many, many people are using now and is far more effective is targeted use. What does that mean? That means that you take a dose of naltrexone one hour prior to engaging in the behavior you wish to stop or decrease. This is classic harm reduction. So let's say an 18 year old is going away to college and they have a tendency to binge drink. They would take this medication an hour before they drink alcohol every time they drink alcohol. Let's say you're a, a parent sitting at home right now during COVID and you're so stressed and full of anxiety and you've found that your drinking has gone from two glasses of wine to six glasses of wine a night and you're getting scared. You would take naltrexone one hour prior to the first drink of the day every time you drink. What this does is the naltrexone gets into your bloodstream and into your brain. And it basically, I always try to describe it as this, it puts a condom over your opioid receptors. It's your prophylactic. So it covers the opiate receptors. It blocks them so that when you drink and those endorphins are released, they're going to bounce right off the opiate receptor and they're not going to engorge the neuropathways. Eventually, much like Pavlov dogs, Pavlov's dog unlearned the behavior of salivating when he rang the bell, you are going to unlearn the behavior of desiring more alcohol. You're going to be satisfied sooner. You're going to get an off button back. So you're going to have that one glass and go, meh, what do I need more for? I'd rather have some fuzzy water or a cup of tea, which is what we want you to do. We want you to be a normal drinker again. And I know that a lot of Americans don't understand this, but drinking every single night by yourself or in front of Netflix is not normal drinking. Normal drinking all around the world, where in countries where they do drink, is a very small amount of alcohol with a meal and with other people in a celebratory fashion or enjoying a meal. People don't get hammered like they do other than the UK. I mean, it's a drinking culture in this country. Every single thing is surrounded by alcohol. Go to a football game, got a drink. Go on my boat, got a drink. Go to my book club, got a drink. It's ridiculous. And, and this is because we've been conditioned with movies and television and it, that, that alcohol is fun. Well, take it from me. It's fun until it's not. <laughs> and then it's really not fun. Um, you, so this is a, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Can you tell yeah. us a little, I mean, you shared a little bit more when we've spoken about what other things you tried mm -hmm. and, and where you physically were and emotionally in your journey before you found the Sinclair method. So obviously oh. the Sinclair method has worked for you. You're an advocate of it. You shared mm -hmm. that I think it's 78% um, successful, yeah. which is amazing. Can yep. you just kind of share what, you know, because other people have tried different things too. And and I know you you spent many months, if not longer, trying to find yeah. a, a solution. Oh, gosh, I, I spent years and years. I did the traditional route with rehab, which was a joke. Uh, you know, um, 
it was just really, really expensive and really lousy. Uh, it, I was extremely offended that the first thing they do is label you a narcissist and, and um, antisocial. They try to put labels on you. They try to get you to talk about your childhood, but they don't address the physical issue of cravings, of the mental addiction to the substance when you can't stop thinking about it. So I tried rehab, that didn't work. Um, I tried AA in 17 different meetings in two different countries. I just never really liked to be told that I was powerless. I didn't believe it. I come from a family of scientists and doctors and I did not believe that I was going to be perpetually for the rest of my life powerless over something, and especially as a woman. I didn't like being told that I was powerless. You are powerless over alcohol. Surrender to, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You have an allergy. I mean, it's so antiquated. This book was written a hundred years ago. And everything didn't appeal to me. Labeling myself an alcoholic, my dream was to be able to say, I had a drinking problem. Had. I do not have one anymore. I am not an alcoholic. I don't display any of the hallmarks of alcoholism, which is where I stand today, two years abstinent, joyfully abstinent, after nine years on the Sinclair method. I can say, I used to have a drinking problem. I, it, alcohol doesn't even, it's not even in my wheelhouse. So I don't have to go to a meeting and talk about my past because it doesn't exist for me. It just doesn't matter. I have no cravings. I have no desire for alcohol. If people are drinking in front of me, wonderful, fabulous. You know, so it's, it's, it's it, I would not be comfortable continuing. That would be like having cancer and being in remission and going around to a meeting every day and going, I have cancer. You know, no, you don't. You used to have cancer. You're in remission now. Let's, Words are so powerful. And I hated that negative thing. I wanted to say p powerful words. So that didn't work for me either. And by the way, I'm not dissing anything. Whatever works for you, fabulous. I just have never in 10 years known any single person, not one individual that went to rehab and remained sober. Not one. And I've been in the addiction field for over a decade. I have never met one person who went to rehab and maintained their sobriety. That is pretty shocking. That's that's a really crummy uh, success rate right there. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Okay. So then I did hypnotherapy, which would last a few days. Um, I did uh, vitamin therapy, which was total hogwash. I changed my diet. I got food allergy tests to determine if I was really allergic to. You know, I I did everything. Um, I I did everything short of equine therapy. I think. Um, I, I joined a lot of sober club. I mean, I believe me, I tried everything. Oh, I, done, I also did psychotherapy for three years. Mm. Um, and uh, it made me want to drink. I found um, after trying all of those methods, I, try, I, I went into my first and only medical detox. And while I was in there, I saw a flyer for something called Vivitrol, which is a shot. And it said it was going to eliminate cravings. And I got it, the flyer home and I... I researched it and I found out that that was a lot of dodgy side effects with that. However, the main ingredient was naltrexone. And that led me to Google, another Google search and this book popped up saying the cure for alcoholism. And I thought, oh, this is hogwash again. And then I started reading it and it made complete sense. It was talking about pharmacological extinction, undoing things in the brain, unlearning things. And I know that human beings can unlearn that, that was the most stimulating thing for me. So I read the book and I ordered the medication. I had to order it online, but thanks to the work that I've done with my nonprofit organization, nobody in America ever has to do that again. There are doctors in every single state 
that will support you doing the Sinclair method. Telemedicine, especially during these times, you don't even have to go to an office. You can just go to my foundation, c3foundation.org, and you can literally find a provider that you can call and get naltrexone delivered to your pharmacy the same day and start this program. So it's things have really changed. But when I started it, I had been sober for three or four months by the time I got the medication from India. And I, from the very first time I started drinking, it just shifted something in my brain. I just, I couldn't finish the glass. And that's not to say that over the next nine years, I didn't have times when I overdrank or I, you know, but the difference is it didn't spiral me into a binge. So as long as you stay compliant, then you'll be fine. If you don't stay compliant, which I didn't stay compliant in year six, I had a, a, a personal tragedy happen and I drank without naltrexone and I relearned the habit like that. Mm -hmm. So while you are on the medication, while you're using the medication, you're in remission. That's the way I like to explain it to people. But if you don't take the medication, just like if you're a diabetic and you don't take your insulin, you could, you could really be in big trouble. So this is a lifetime commitment. It is a lifetime commitment. However, the wonderful thing about it is it can prevent a young person from developing an alcohol use disorder. And I think that anybody who has alcoholism in their family will know that the chances of their kid, especially if the kid drank before their brain was fully developed, the kid has a very high chance of developing an alcohol use disorder later in life. So this would be like a preventative. Right. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful pre preventative method to keep your child from developing an alcohol use disorder. Is it safe for, for young teens? Is it something that... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you would have to take upwards of 300 or more milligrams a day to do, to, and for a very long time, to do damage to your liver. It's, it has liver warnings, however, and of course we wouldn't give it to somebody with cirrhosis, but we're talking about over-the-counter pain medications have just as much you know, effect on the liver, adverse effect on the liver. I, I oh. took it for 10 years and my liver absolutely like a 12 year old so right. can you mentioned your foundation a couple minutes ago but you didn't if you could go into it a little bit more so we can hear about it i'd like to All learn. right so in 2009 after i did the method for a while i decided that i was going to come out of the closet as someone with a, a an alcohol issue and i worried about my career and i worried about the sort of repercussion of this but i also knew that if i didn't talk about this method it would be a disservice to humanity because it works for so many people. And it was being used in Finland for 20 years and they have massive success results and all over Europe. And I thought this is ridiculous that Americans are dying at the rate of you know, 88,000 a year and it's costing this country $250 billion a year, excess alcohol consumption, $250 billion a year. That's wow. lost days of work, accidents, and you know, medical costs, I once met a, a doctor who ran a burn burn center and he said, I said, good boy, it's a huge center for burns. He said, yeah, thanks to alcoholics. Wow. So just think about that. So alcoholics keep a lot of doctors in business. And, and it's, I think it's a tra tragedy that doctors in this country are, are, I don't want to use the word lazy, but I will, but they're lazy enough to just say to people, oh, just stop drinking and go to a meeting. That is not effective treatment. In fact, that's not treatment. That's called peer support. That's what an AA meeting is. It's peer support. It is not treatment. It doesn't help you. If you had a, a heart issue, would you go to a meeting for people with heart issues? If you right. had leukemia, would you go to a meeting to talk about leukemia? No, you would get the best medication you could. You would use science to treat your disease. 
1956, the AMA labeled alcoholism as a disease of the brain. Why are we still treating it like it's a malady of the spirit? I mean, my right. God, this is like, why don't we just start burning witches again? Because <laughs> you know, it's so antiquated and ridiculous. Anyway, back to your question. Um, in 2010, I decided that I would start becoming an advocate for this method. So I wrote a book, which was published in 2012, called Babylon Confidential. It's a memoir about my Hollywood experience and, of course, the addiction and how I found TSM. And then I decided to make a movie because I thought people don't really read books much anymore. They need a visual. So I made the documentary One Little Pill, which you can watch for free on Amazon or Tubi. Um, Tubi, it might be down right now, but it's on Amazon for sure. Or you can go to onelittlepill.com, onelittlepillmovie.com, excuse me, uh, and rent it there for a few dollars, which goes back to my foundation. And that documentary uh, shows real people on it and explains the science behind it. So I really made that for loved ones of people with drinking problems so that they can actually understand what their loved one is doing. It's not an excuse to drink. It's an actual real science-based method to treat their alcohol misuse. Then I decided, well, you know what? I better, I better open a nonprofit so I can really put like all the information in one place. So that launched in 2013, and we went from being a one-page website to get to being a wonderfully inclusive, uh, extensive website. We even have a doctor site for doctors to learn about TSM, which is c3foundation.net, and of course the main page is c3foundation.org. We have free peer support. We have free drink logs people can download for their phones um, to track their drinks. We have literature, all of the clinical studies. We have providers. We have links to the coaching page where I coach and I have other coaches that really know TSM. So it's a one-stop shopping for, um, for TSM and the majority of it is free. Um, so it's, TEDx, it's really one. Your TEDx talk is on that too, right? Yeah, the TEDx talk, which I did in 2016, has had millions of views and it's helped a lot of people. In fact, I wanted to do another TEDx talk this year, but I uh, obviously COVID prohibited me from traveling. So instead, I think I'm going to film it and then just put it up for people to see. It talks about the hacking of the brain that addiction causes so that people who have never experienced addiction can stop with stigma and shame and start understanding what it feels like to have your brain hijacked by a compulsive disorder, whether that's bulimia, anorexia, whether it's obsessive compulsive disorder or whether it's alcohol use disorder. I want people to really understand what it feels like and how we can treat it in a, in a more um, humane fashion without punitive measures. Punitive measures don't work in my opinion. Punishment for children especially just doesn't work. You know, you, the, the person who is suffering is suffering from a very lonely place. I was extremely isolated toward the worst of my disease in, in when I was in the height of it. I was isolated. I felt shame. I felt guilt. I felt horrific about myself. I just, I, I hated myself. And it's a very dark, dark place that addiction takes you. And so it's important for people to understand that the most important thing for them to do is to stand in love and understanding. And that means if you're a parent, you start researching the problem your child has, whether it's an eating disorder or a substance use disorder, research the hell out of it. That is your job. And then once you've discovered every possible option of treating it, have a nice loving conversation with your child and tell them, I understand, I think I understand. It's never happened to me, but I think I'm beginning to understand what you're going through and I wanna support you. I wanna be there for you. 
And I'm not, I'm, I don't want to push you away with whatever I say. So we have to communicate. We really have to communicate. And you just have to do that with just so much love in your heart. Had I had any friend who would have said to me, you know what, I know you're probably not ready to hear this, but I'm really worried about you and I love you so much. And I'm here if you need me. That's it. That's, if I just would have heard those words instead of, you know, you really should do something about this, or you made an idiot of yourself last night, or you were so sloppy, or you look bloated. All of the negativity just made me want to drink more. Mm -hmm. So it's a really, you're very fragile when you're suffering with, with any of these, these issues. We learned through our process, because when our daughter was away in treatment, we learned uh, that we weren't very good at attunement. So what it meant was, you know, what it meant was actually having an area that she felt safe to actually share how she was feeling that created the issue, not just mm. acknowledging the issue and being there for them. So it was even a step further, which we've learned a lot from for sure. Um, as we wrap up, um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but our, our podcast is really focused on parents um, and their children who are going through some intense therapy, often away from home, and they're exploring it, or they're in the middle of it, or they've you know finished it, and and uh, and we've been through all of that. And and uh, I guess my question to you is is given your journey, what message would you give parents who are struggling with their children with addiction? It really depends on which addiction it is. For instance, marijuana um, can't be treated with an opiate antagonist. Unfortunately. Well, let's stick with alcohol. Yeah, with alcohol, I would definitely have somehow try to have a conversation with the, the, the child asking them how the alcohol makes them feel. Because if, if it makes them feel like themselves, as I mentioned earlier, you can then maybe get an idea of why they're using it to self-medicate. You also really want to ensure that there's no other underlying issues, any coexisting disorders. Because once again, we go back to the self-medicating aspect of, of substances. So with alcohol, it, it definitely relieves temporarily right off the bat, it will relieve anxiety, but then it's going to make the anxiety worse because the cortisol is going to shoot up in your system and you're going to become more anxious and more anxious and need more and more alcohol to self-medicate. So you really want to very gently sort of prod them as to, look, I, I know you're drinking and I just want to know how it makes you feel and, and why you feel compelled to use it. Um, and then you definitely wanna have a chat with them about how progressive alcohol, alcohol misuse is and that, that what can happen. So this means educating yourself as to all of the treatment options and certainly talking about medications of saying, you know, maybe you'd like to try this this uh, anti-binge drinking pill or this anti, you know, that so that you don't really develop a, a, a bad problem um, later on in life. And you also want to talk about hiding. And hiding anything also stimulates endorphins in the brain. That's why kleptomaniacs become addicted to stealing. So the act of hiding is a thrilling thing that, that often children will seek that thrill and adults seek that thrill too. And back in the cocaine days, I mean, tons of adults got a thrill out of running into the bathroom and doing a quick bump and just knowing that they got away with something. 
and children do this too. So they think, oh, I just, I'm hiding a fifth of vodka under my bed. Mom doesn't know. And that's a thrill to them. And that's also, once again, engorging the neural pathways. So all of these habits and things you're adding up to training your brain to really become reliant upon these, these thrills. What we want to do ideally is we want the kid to become thrilled by other things like endorphins from natural activities. Of course, working out is wonderful. Nature is huge. Playing with uh, smaller children and animals, babies and animals releases a ton of endorphins, which is just wonderful. That's why animal therapy works for a lot of young people. It really, it really gets the endorphins going and that's what you want to do. And that's another element that I want to throw in there quickly about um, the Sinclair method is it's, it's a dual aspect therapy. So on the days that you don't drink and don't take naltrexone, if you engage in these good endorphin producing activities, you actually get twice as much thrill mm -hmm. because, because your brain is kind of starved for endorphins. So if, if you go for a long walk in nature or go to the beach or something, you're going to feel amazing. And that's what we want people to do. We want them to develop natural endorphins, natural dopamine, natural serotonin, get their brain healthy again, get their circadian rhythms back, start to sleep well. You know, so if, if you or, or a loved one is going through any of this, you have to ask yourself first, why? Why am I drinking? Why am I immediately going for the alcohol? Is there something else I can do? Can I take a walk? Can I play tennis? Can I go to go play with my dog? Can I bake a, a fabulous, you know, muffins or cake? Can I, can I make it something special? Can I do some art? Something else. Can I do something else? Why, do, why is our immediate knee-jerk response to anything negative? I have to have a drink. Or it's a reward. Oh, I had a long day at work. I have to have a bottle of wine. No, you don't. You could actually yeah. do something much better for yourself. Why do you want to put 2,000 empty calories in your system? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Very, yeah. very interesting. So Claudia, that was incredibly interesting. And um, I'm sure we're going to have parents who want to learn more about you, about you know, your foundation, about the, the medication. Can you maybe give some information on how our parents could find you or, or some more insight into Yes, absolutely. So the website, which should be your first stop, is c3foundation.org. And that's c-t-h-r-e-e foundation.org. But if you happen to put in Claudia Christian, TED Talk, Claudia Christian, the Sinclair Method, Claudia Christian, C3 Foundation with the number three, well, anything, you'll find me. I think it's really great to watch the TED Talk. It's under 15 minutes long. And that you can just find by, by Googling Claudia Christian, spelled like the religion, and then uh, like Christian, Chris, you know, that's how I spell my last name. And then TEDx talk or TED talk or alcoholism or anything like that will get you to it. Then if you want to watch the documentary, it's called One Little Pill. And if you Google One Little Pill documentary or One Little Pill alcoholism or One Little Pill Claudia Christian, it'll come up. I promise you. And you'll have options to either watch it for free on Amazon if you're an Amazon Prime member or rent it or rent it at the website. And on the website, you can also see the trailer of it. And that's onelittlepillmovie.com is that website. Um, if you go to the contact page on the website, you, will, you can certainly send in a question and it'll eventually get back to me. You can just say, this question is for Claudia. I heard her on a podcast. Can you send it to her? I don't answer every email that comes in anymore because it was taking up my entire life. So, so um, 
it, you can flag it that way, or you can uh, contact Andy and Lori, and they will uh, send me your emails um, if that's okay with you guys. Sure. Um, so yeah, and then um, I would say that's a really good start. The the website has everything you need, including how to find a provider, is all the scientific information, everything. Um, and then the documentary is a great learning tool. It's under an hour long, so it's great for loved ones to show. In fact, if you have a, a, a loved one who's drinking too much, it's great to show them that documentary to sit down and watch it with them and say, look, I saw this and I think this method might help you. I'm not trying to judge you, but I think, you know, I'd really like to help you cut down on drinking. Great. Well, thank you so much, Claudia. That was so enlightening. <laughs> really great. <laughs> Alcoholism. Yeah, alcoholism is a real serious problem, and I'm grateful you were able to spot. We were able to spotlight it today and provide some great information as well. Our next episode, we're pleased to be talking with Paul Sinceri. He's an innovative therapist who's a developer of the intensive in-home family treatment, which is a family-based model of treatment for children and adolescents who suffer from depression, anxiety, and other serious mental health issues. Paul focuses on the family unit as a whole, not just children and their parents getting therapy separately. This should be a great episode. Thanks again, Claudia. We loved having you. And uh, thank you for tuning in, parents. And remember, take care of your children and empower yourself with information at Parents Journey.